70% of the Fortune 500 use Pluralsight to upskill their workforce. Now, you can take the same courses to boost your dev skills. Start a free trial today. Visit Pluralsight.com stack to learn more. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Stack Overflow podcast, a place to talk about all things software and technology. My name is Ryan Donovan. I edit the blog at Stack Overflow, and my guest today is Dylan Etkin, CEO and co-founder of Sleuth. And we'll be talking about uh, you know all things engineering efficiency, Dora metrics, continuous delivery, all the fun stuff. And he's also a original architect of Jira, so maybe we'll we'll get mad about that too. <laughs> Welcome to the program, Dylan. Thank you so much, and hello to your audience. I'm excited to be here. So at the top of these shows, we like to you know, find out a little bit about our guest. How did you get into technology and what are you doing at the role you're at now? Yeah, so I've been in the tech world for, oh man, I'm aging myself now, but probably about uh, 25 years or so. So, you know, started working as a developer long ago. Funny enough, had a degree in psychology and then realized that wasn't what I wanted to do uh, and took a hard, hard left turn into computer science. You know, I would probably say that actually as years of an engineering manager and now as a CEO of a small startup, my psychology degree actually came in pretty handy. <laughs> so yeah, for myself, I really you know, did, did a number of things, but probably the most exciting was I, I connected with a small startup called Atlassian. When there were basically 20 people there, I had moved to Sydney with my family and I knew of like two organizations that were there, Atlassian and ThoughtWorks. And uh, yeah, ended up working at Atlassian. And who knew? I, I thought I joined a startup. And it turns out I joined a global behemoth. Right. But, you know, great opportunity to learn tons of things. I uh, did engineering there, architect, like you say, mm-hmm. ran some engineering teams for them. And yeah, I've been running my own startup for the last four years or so. Sleuth, I just had my anniversary, as we like to call it. Okay. Congratulations. Thank you. So there's obviously a lot of focus, I would say in the last few years, but probably forever on making engineering teams efficient and you know tracking that efficiency right a few years ago uh, i think it was google came up with the dora metrics as a way to sort of measure high performing teams what do you think about the the dora metrics well i mean i'm a huge fan because i run a company where we've actually built something to to help track those but you know to take it maybe a level up like you say Engineering efficiency isn't new. I always like to joke that uh, back in the punch card days, if you had less punch cards, you were like more efficient, right? Right. But you know the fallacy of that is is pretty obvious to everybody, and and I think a lot of the measures that we have tried in the world of software engineering have often been wrong, like obviously wrong, mm-hmm. uh, specifically to developers who are doing the work. And one of the great things about those Dora metrics is that there's a lot of research that goes behind them that correlates to organizational performance. And they tend to take something that is very complicated, which is this idea of concept all the way through to reliable launch, and they boil them into numbers that we can reason about. And you can do things and measure whether you've moved those numbers in some direction or not, which is a very powerful change to how we've done these things in the past. Yeah, it is interesting. I've seen kind of a shift um, and people arguing against individual developer efficiency for team and our organization efficiency. And like you said, there were wrongheaded ways to do it, like lines of code written or something like that. Number of pull requests, exactly. Sure. 
Do you think of the sort of metrics that are thrown around, is there one that is more important than others? Hmm. You know, the one thing I will say first is that you're you're right that the team focus is super important, or at least from our perspective over here at Sleuth, we think that software is a team sport and that when you focus on individuals and you try and stack rank based off of these sorts of things, all sorts of nightmares come about. You, you will just not get team buy-in and it's not productive. There are other ways to understand if people are performing well or performing poorly. But, you know, if we accept that Dora metrics are a team measure and that you can make a difference on those, I would say that the change lead time is where we see a lot of organizations just starting. Mm-hmm. So if you are trying to get a baseline and understand how well am I doing, how well am I doing in relation to other teams inside of my organization and to teams outside of my organization, change lead time is just a really easy to understand measure. You know, you're talking about how long am I spending coding when I put up a code review? How long do I wait for somebody to actually start to look at that? Once they've done so, how long does it take them to complete it? And then once I've merged, how long does it take for things to get into a specific environment? Mm. And those, you know, tend to be pretty powerful. Like people have a gut feel of how long those are taking, but they're continuously surprised by the real answers because there's very often something going wrong there that they they didn't know about. Right. And change lead time is basically like from report to deploy, right? There's a little bit of a debate, I think, about how that's interpreted. In the Dora report, I think they talk a lot about, you know, you merge and then it's deployed. How we see a lot of folks using it more in practice is understanding that, you know, from concept through to reliable launch. And another place where probably we differ or the industry tends to differ from the academic side of it is uh, the academic side is very specific about production and production only. You know, almost no team I have ever worked with just focuses on production. So the idea of merging a pull request and then, you know, it instantly makes it across to everything. That's not very realistic. And a lot of teams for good reasons can't necessarily measure their developer efficiency by when it gets to production, but they have like many pre-production environments where they might be able to quantify their developer flow and then understand that there's a certain lag from a pre-production environment to a production environment. Sure. There's all the, you know, post-coding, the build time, the the deploy. So, you know, continuous integration, continuous deployment are are big buzzwords for the past couple of years. Are, Are they the same thing? Um, they're very close. I would say that, and I always have to like, look it up. I always forget continuous deployment is something that we don't see a lot of teams doing mm-hmm. continuous delivery or tends to be what teams tend to focus on. So it is rare to see a team that says like every commit goes to production. What we generally see is that like, you know, really high performing teams are deploying multiple times a day to their production environments, but they're doing it through pull requests you know, or if they have a large enough team, they have to have a merge train where they're bulking a couple of pull requests out at any given time. But they're absolutely striving for that holy grail, which is smaller batch sizes, mm. right? So that they can just reason about the blast area of, of what it is that they're doing and deliver reliably. Mm-hmm. With Jira, I feel like that was sort of tracking the pre-delivery, like the coding portion of the process. Since your time building Jira, do you think that process has changed much for better or worse? Hmm. I mean, I think I halfway agree with you that it's capturing the coding side. I think 
Jira does a great job of capturing the planning side, mm. you know, and it, and it has a real part to play in the coding aspect of it, but it's, it's almost where ideas go to germinate and to be turned from something high level to something specific, you know, and then broken down into things that can be coded. And then there's that element of helping shepherd things across to, to finished code. But a lot of the folks that we work with, and I think a lot of folks in your audience would probably agree that Jira's kind of bad at reflecting the real state of where code is at. So it's this like strange collection of things that are not necessarily reflecting reality, right? Mm. It was this thing, this issue, we were going to work on it. You know, it looks like it got put into this state. Oh, but it's actually been deployed for three days or four weeks, or actually we decided we were never going to do it, right? It's it's a little mm -hmm. out of sync with reality. And so from the coding side of things, I think it does a, a not great job of reflecting that, mm. but it does a really great job of the high level planning and, and communication with the rest of your team. Yeah, that's a fair point. That my last position was my first encounter with story points. And that's always mm. a, a tool of estimation and planning. Whether those story points reflect the actual development is another issue. But, you know, the story points attached to an epic always made it into management documents. Like this is how right. people are doing. This is sort of tracking the performance. Do you think that is a intended use case? Or is that a sort of like, metrics gone wild hmm. i would say that it's a little more metrics gone wild i remember being the age that i am i was around for the agile revolution and if i remember correctly the intent was for us to be able to talk about relative sizes mm -hmm. and to instigate a conversation amongst developers to make sure that we were breaking things down and honestly, interestingly enough, I think it was the advent of this idea of batch size, which DevOps has done such a better job of quantifying. It was mm -hmm. trying to say, if you think this is 24 jelly beans, that's far too many jelly beans. Can you rescope this to make it four? You know, like we used to say, hey, we're maxing out at eight. And there was always the argument of, is it jelly beans or is it hours? And yeah, guess what? It was always hours. But all of that was to say, can we do smaller increments? Can we? reason about it so that you don't get stuck on something for five days without any help and you know that you can ship value to customers faster right and using those things as a measure for management oh yeah that was another reason why the engineering efficiency market really has a lot of uh, past baggage to jettison mm -hmm. and you know along with measuring engineering efficiency there's also been this other term I've heard in a couple of years, value stream management. What is that? And what's the difference between that and engineering efficiency, if any? Yeah. You know, I think a lot of people call it value stream. There's an older topic, which was value stream. I don't think that quite equates to the new term of value stream. I've also heard people call it engineering allocation. And the idea is really, where are we spending our time? So Dora metrics do a great job of telling you how effectively you're working on the things that you're working on. Mm -hmm. Now, my PM said a thing once, which I think was great, which was, uh, you know, Doran metrics will never tell you whether you're on track or not. Mm -hmm. So like you could be working really well and really effectively on all the wrong things, you know, and spending all of your time on stuff that doesn't matter to your business. Now, if you pair that up with something like engineering allocation or value stream, you can get more of a sense 
of whether you're working on the right things and whether those things are shipping or not shipping. Think of it, and I'm sure this isn't new to your audience as well, which is this idea of like, keep the lights on, you know, the KTLO. Mm -hmm. So you're going to have some sort of mixture of like feature work, KTLO, support, bug fixes, maybe infrastructure or tech debt payoff or, or those sorts of things. And generally speaking, from an engineering organization perspective, you want to align that with the business needs. You want to say, hey, right now we're happy to charge up more tech debt. So we're going to cap out at like, you know, 15% of tech debt. And we're going to like make sure that we're focusing on, you know, feature work for 60% of what we're trying to do. But understanding those engineering allocations of where people are actually spending their time, not just where Jira is telling you they're spending their time, it's a little bit of a hard problem. Mm -hmm. You know, I also been in software for a while, and I wonder if this problem has gotten harder because we're no longer actually shipping, you know, on a regular cadence, right? You don't have a disk that goes out every six months or a download that goes up every three months or whatever. Do you think that the expectation of continuous fixes and feature delivery has made you know, tracking performance harder. I don't. I actually think it's made it easier. Trying to reason about what changed in a three or six month increment is really difficult. Mm. There's just so many things that have changed at any given time. There's so much why behind the things that have changed that it's really hard to disentangle and learn anything from that big blob of change all at once. So the idea of breaking it into tiny little pieces that are shipping in smaller increments, I think is a lot easier to reason about. Mm. And honestly, it's easier to measure. So, you know, for our product, we tie into all of the real tools that you're using today. And we look at your pull requests and we look at your issues and we look at your deployment system and all of that. And I will fully own the fact that if you're a team that's shipping like once every three months or once every six months, we struggle to get any level of signal out of the noise that you're generating. Mm, interesting. Yeah, I mean, we did do a post with Charity Majors of Honeycomb talking about mm. getting faster and faster feedback loops so you can figure out what's wrong in a faster and faster manner. Yeah, I think it's more satisfying for the individuals that are working in that manner as well. Mm -hmm. You know, it's better for your customers too. I mean, we had an instance just the other day, we did this customer interview Somebody was giving us some feedback on on this new automations marketplace that we have. And they were like, you know, I'm, I tried to install 15 and it was just obnoxious that I had to keep selecting this thing. And we're like, that's a good point. And I mean, you know, one of our developers heard that and was like, I've got a solution. I'm going to put a little checkbox there, keep you on the same screen, whatever. It was shipped the next day and we could turn around to that customer and say, hey, remember how you said that was annoying? Shouldn't be anymore. And right. I mean, you can win customers for life when you can move at that sort of speed, you know? Right. And they, they don't have to do any legwork on their end. It's just change and it's better. Right. So I, I want to switch up a little bit. It's interesting that you were a psychology major. What insights into managing engineering teams do you think you've got because of your psychology background? I mean, the psychology background just never hurt. Mm -hmm. It is good to have a basis for the fact that we're all squishy humans. And that emotions play into things. And, you know, probably for myself, being an engineer and being a little on the weirdo engineer side of things helps you get into the mindset of the people that you're working with as an engineering manager, right? At the end of the day, as a, an engineering manager or a CEO, 
you are trying to create an environment where you can get the best out of the people that you work with. Right. Mm. And that means being mindful and paying attention to who these people are, what motivates them, how they like to work. You know, not everybody is the same or maybe a couple of archetypes of, of types of people, you know, so like over time you can recognize patterns and, and the like, but understanding that there's no one size fits all. And that if you do want to get the very best out of your people, you have to understand where their strengths and their weaknesses lie and, and work mm-hmm. with them to sort of put them in a position where they can do the best work of their life. Yeah. I actually think that's one of the better ones is that people are these squishy emotional creatures. There seems to be sort of a new application to business where, you know, we're in this post Fordist realm where like people aren't just parts of a, you know, assembly line. But I've also heard that there is a hard transition from engineer to engineering manager. Why do you think that is? Oh, yeah, I would agree with that completely. You know, I've, I've taken a number of folks from like an amazing IC and then put them in a leadership position. It's just such a different experience, right? I mean, there's a, there's a number of different things that make that difficult. First off, just your sense of satisfaction and how the job is actually getting completed changes like overnight. You know, I always like to tell this story of like, you know, if you're an amazing IC, let's say a normal IC does a three. I don't care what that number is, but they do a three, right? But you're so good. You do a five, you know, and like maybe if you don't sleep for two nights in a row, you can get that up to a six, but it's like humanly impossible to get up to a seven, right? And you go home every day satisfied that you did a five, you know, and that feels good to you because you made a difference. Now you start managing people. Let's say you have five people that basically are doing threes. Well, the cool thing is, is you get to like reason about 15. You know what I mean? Like you get to think at the level of 15, but you're not producing that, you know, and your satisfaction has to come from the fact that your, your team is doing a 15. And if you're really good at what you do, Hey, maybe you move a couple of those people up to a four, you know, and now your team of five is producing a 20 and like, wow, you know, like that's, that's a huge difference, but that's a change, you know, like that's a incredible mental shift. And just because you were good at motivating yourself to get to a five day after day does not mean that you are good at motivating a team of five people to move from a three to a four or even stay at a three. Right. Yeah. You're not doing the work yourself. You can't push yourself a little harder. You have to figure out how it works with the team. Yeah. So if you're looking to, you know, encourage teams to go from a, you know, 15 to a 16, what are some of the levers you can pull? I mean, there's so many great things out there. It's really about culture, you know, Mm. but then there's a a lot of tooling that exists out in the world that can help enforce culture. Mm. So Dora and DevOps are a great way to think about like structuring a team because you're empowering individuals, you know, like having a very quick planning process means that you can be a little ad hoc, but like cater to the individuals. There's a lot of tools out there. Ours is one of those too where you can set certain guardrails, things like, you know, hey, we will only open a pull request when there's an issue key reference, or we want to do Slack-based approvals when we move some change from a staging environment to a production environment. You know, there's tools that will help you set guardrails and take some of the best practices that the the best high-performing teams are using today and implement those for your team. And like, you know, that tooling and that sort of guardrail 
can help set culture and help explain to your team, this is how we as an organization or as a team work. Hmm. Say one more thing on that too, is that it's about continuous learning. I think the the best teams out there have this mindset of we're going to continuously improve. We're going to continuously learn. And if your group of people has that mindset, there's any number of tools that you can use or processes that you can use to do that. But it's the, the mindset's the key, mm. you know, like being bought into that, not saying we've always done it this way and we're always going to do it that way. Mm-hmm. Do you think some of the new AI tooling has a place in sort of putting those guardrails in culture? I'm trying to understand exactly what the impact of those things are going to be, if I'm being completely honest with you. And I, I've been on a voracious learning journey about what is the art of possible with these tools and what is the art of reality with these tools today and what we could potentially offer for tomorrow. I would say the jury is still out on those things for me. It seems like the thing that is most effective and most impactful right now is suggesting code and you know removing that toil of having to stop go into your browser you know go and google a thing take a snippet and put it into your ide right like now that's just kind of like in the flow but i would also say that there's a a fair bit of early research out there saying that it doesn't make a huge impact on overall efficiency you know like we've got folks out there that are measuring the door metrics showing that like, you know, the folks that have adopted these tools are not overly more efficient than those who have not. So I think the jury's still out. Mm. Obviously, we've heard that they're going to make everybody much more efficient. But do you know what the sort of slowdown is from generating a block of code to production? Because I feel like if you have the block of code in front of you, if it's all correct, right, you just put in the production. So obviously, it's not going to be all correct. Yeah. Nowadays, I think that's probably the issue is that it's just like any other tool where, you know, I liken it to back in the 2000s where we had these IDEs. Like if you were using Java, Java has a lot of boilerplate. And then some of these IDEs just let you say, boom, generate the boilerplate, right? And I didn't have to type a bunch of junk. It seems like we've taken that up like five or six notches where you're like, you know, I want to do something with the API. I say it in a in a code comment and I get more or less the code there, but I still have to look and go, uh, we don't get the project that way. We get it this way. So let me change that. You know, oh, it seemed to suggest this thing, but actually I want to prorate the thing. So let me just like, you know, change this up a little bit. So there's still some, you know, human interaction side. But I was talking to somebody at a conference a while ago, somebody who's at a VC that's very AI oriented, you know, and she was convinced that there's some big models out there that, you know, are able to do like a a mid-level engineer's work right now today. I mean, that to me sounds a little unbelievable, but who knows? (laughs) Maybe it'll it'll move in a leap instead of an increment. Maybe. I mean, I've talked to folks and I've heard it's good at scaffolding, but it's not going to give you perfect code. Yeah. But I mean, I don't know about you, but I would not have imagined that we would have been this close to where we are right now maybe three years ago. So, you know, the folks that are at the forefront of this are are leaping us ahead. And I think that every startup or every organization right now is asking a very hard question of themselves, which is how do we bring this new tool to bear on the problems that our users have in a way that is impactful and not just shiny? Because the shiny is almost obnoxious and takes away from, you know, some of the efficacy of some of these other things. Yeah. 
I mean, with anything this shiny, you hope that there's something useful behind it. Yeah, I think this one has staying power, obviously, right? Because we're learning what the art of possible is and it's evolving every day. But you know that like 90% of the things that people are trying with it right now are going to be in the garbage bin in you know <laughs> a year or two years. And the other 10% is going to be where the real value is at. Well, you got to love a new bubble, huh? <laughs> it's always something. <laughs> you know, I mean, back in the day at Atlassian, I ran uh, the Bitbucket team. And for a while, Git and GitHub, you know, like the idea of pull requests and whatever, that was the bubble, you know? No. And now it's just what we all use to do things, you know? It changes. So if, you know, if not AI, maybe a sort of lower level thing that will, will help the performance, uh, maybe something like better automation, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I am a huge believer in automations for transforming the software industry, you know, from day one. So if we think about, the things that have removed developer toil and allowed us to, you know, focus on the higher level order things that we're trying to solve. I mean, CICD is a great example. When I started in the industry, it was a little unusual to write unit tests and do CI because you had to run it on your local machine. It's just a given now that you would not start a project without writing tests and having it in some sort of you know, CICD system. Similarly with deployments, they, they used to be a nightmarish thing that only happened so often. Now we've moved to a place where we can automate those and make it a non-event. You know, I will argue that at this point, we have built automations on top of each other such that we're in a place where we can take a lot of the best practices that teams are using today to create those guardrails, to create that culture, to create a DevOps culture. And we can delegate a lot of that stuff to automations as well. So you know, when I get excited about how we move the industry forward next, AI might be a part of some of those automations, but to me, it's continuously delegating toil to the robots where it belongs and giving humans and developers specifically more time to focus on the, the real work that they're trying to do. Can we automate an efficiency process for teams? Or is that the bridge too far? I think to a certain degree we can. I think there are things like, like I, I brought this up earlier in the podcast, you know, where you're saying, I want to have all of my developers, when something has gone out to staging, do a quick smoke check and ask themselves, is this working the way that I wanted it to work? And can I very quickly verify that and then get it off into customers' hands out in production? And I don't want to leave the tools that I'm using. I want to do that in Slack. We can automate that process. There's a lot of toil in there. If we said we wanted to do that on an individual item-by-item -item basis, you are going to spend a couple of hours every time you do it, doing it, chalking down who I should mention in Slack and then you know, right. waiting for them to respond and all these things. That is something that belongs in the robot's hands. And I think once you've done that, you haven't completely given off efficiency to the robots, mm -hmm. but you have said that plus 15 other things is the framework is which we're going to work. And that is setting down a very efficient and effective way of working. So I do think we're very close to that. Well, this is the end of the show. As we do, I'm going to shout out a badge winner today. I'm going to shout out a Stellar Question winner. Rhinop won a Stellar Question for how do you json.stringify an E6 map? So at least 100 users save that question for later. My name is Ryan Donvan. I edit the blog here at Stack Overflow. You can find it at stackoverflow.blog. And if you want to find me on social media, I am rthordonovan on Twitter.
And I'm Dylan Etkin. I'm co-founder and CEO at Sleuth. If you are interested in learning more about engineering efficiency or want to measure for your team, check us out at sleuth.io. We have a link to the way that we sleuth inside of Sleuth. So you can check out our live demo. And if you're interested in some of the automations that we offer up for teams, you can browse our public marketplace at marketplace.sleuth.io. All right. Well, thank you very much for listening and give a like and subscribe. It really helps.